Well, it's good to have you in the Lord's house today, and uh, uh, many of you know we have only four Sundays left before Easter, so we're, we're beginning the countdown to Easter, and we just finished uh, a, a series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount, and we finished that up uh, weekend before last, and uh, last Sunday we did something we've never done on a Sunday morning before, if you were here, in light of uh, Billy Graham's death, we uh, played a video. It was about a 29-minute video, and that was um, of the last sermon that Billy Graham ever preached. And if you were here, uh, you were able to watch that. If, if you were not, you can look it up. I think it's called Billy Graham's Message to America, The Cross. Uh, he, he recorded it about five years ago when he was 90, about 95 years of age. And by the way, talking about Billy Graham, um, if you didn't see the uh, funeral service... Uh, I would encourage you to take a few moments. You can look it up. I'm sure it's on the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association um, website, I'm sure, and among many others. But if you don't watch any other part of it, if you could just fast forward to uh, the testimonies of his sister, his one remaining sister who is still alive, and his, uh, well, he had five kids, if you count Franklin, and I'm sure he does. But Franklin gave the sermon at the conclusion but his other four children each gave a brief uh, testimony and a remembrance of their father. And I just thought it was, it was a wonderful uh, testimony. So that's your homework for this coming week. Uh, if you missed that, look that up on YouTube or look it up on the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website or any variety of places. I'm sure you, you know how to... Everybody knows how to work Google, right? You know, just do a search and find that video, and, and if you don't do anything else, it'll take you maybe about 15, 20 minutes to watch those testimonies, but I thought they were uh, a, wonderful, a wonderful testimony. And I wanted to mention something that Ann Graham Lotz, one of his daughters, shared, and, and uh, she said she looked up the date that Billy Graham passed away on, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was the 28th or so, maybe the February something, and uh, she thought, what significance does that date have? And, and she shared that she found that that was the day that all Jews uh, do scripture reading about Moses. It's a day to remember Moses. And she thought, you know, Moses led uh, the people of Israel up to the promised land, and then he, he uh, was taken away by God. He, he was taken by God and was not allowed to go into the promised land, but then Joshua came, and of course we know that Joshua, uh, in the New Testament, it's the same name, Jesus. Jesus and Joshua is the same name. And uh, someone else mentioned, I just thought it was interesting that Billy Graham started his ministry in the late 40s, which is right after World War II, and something else happened. I think about 1948, Israel became a nation, the first time in 2,000 years that the Jewish people had a homeland uh, that they could call their own. And, uh, you know, some people have said, you know, maybe Billy Graham was something like a modern-day John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist came to usher in the first coming of Jesus. I don't know. I'm not saying it's so, but it's something to think about. He certainly was a special man. Nobody's ever preached to that many people in person. I think I read 200 million people. Can you imagine that? That's not who heard him on television. Those are people who were in stadiums and heard him preach in person. To, I mean, I, I can't even fathom that many people. So I know that he has a special place in, in God's plan. I don't know what that is, but I think that perhaps we should take notice that he's no longer here. He's no longer here. He's been removed 
uh, from the scene. And what does that mean? I don't know. It's, it's what God has always told us to do, to be ready. To be ready. Because I do believe Jesus is coming back again. And I think certainly, just like in the days of Noah, you know, people became complacent and didn't, uh, didn't care much about what God had to say. And that's the way the Bible says it's going to be before Jesus comes back again. So, um, I told him last Sunday night, I've talked about Billy Graham ever since he died, and we watched a video, we watched another one, I think Sunday, uh, Wednesday night or Sunday night, and I promised him we wouldn't watch any more Billy Graham videos for a while, but I didn't tell you I wasn't going to talk about him, so I just spent a few minutes talking about him. But anyway, look that up, if you, hadn't, if you didn't see the funeral service, look up at least that part where his children shared, and I think it'll bless your, bless your heart. Well, as we get ready for Easter and we're going to take these next four Sundays and we're going to look at, at what people call the Passion of Christ, and that is the events that occur uh, leading up to uh, the death of Christ. And if you take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find that a very large percentage of each of those Gospels are taken up by the death of Jesus. I mean, certainly we just finished the Sermon on the Mount and that was very important what Jesus taught. But if you look at the four Gospels, it is almost as if, and I would say it is, as if the focal point of the Gospels are the death of Jesus. It's not simply what He taught or the people He healed, but the focus is His death. And my friend, that is no accident because the Bible tells us that that is exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without that, all we have is simply some, some wonderful teachings about how to have and how to treat your fellow man. And these are wonderful things and, and the Lord gave them to us. But that's not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel... It's not what Jesus said. It's not love your neighbor. The power of the gospel is not his teaching. But the power of the gospel is the death of Jesus. His suffering. His blood. His death upon the cross. The power of the gospel is his death and his burial. You know, you bury dead folks. I remember Adrian Rogers. I, he often would give the example... Uh, speaking about baptism, while well, one of the reasons he believed that immersion is the correct method of, of biblical baptism, he said baptism represents a burial. He said if when I die, he said I'd appreciate it if y'all wouldn't sprinkle a little dirt on me, but put me in the ground. Bury me. It's not a proper burial. You just sprinkle a little dust on somebody. So anyway, that's kind of a free sermon on the right, right mode of baptism. That's not the sermon today. But Jesus was buried, signifying that he was dead. He didn't faint. He didn't pass out. He didn't go into a coma. But he was, he, he, he was dead. He was uh, killed upon the cross. He gave up the ghost on the cross. He died. He was buried. And he rose on the third day. That is the gospel. And so for the next couple of Sundays, as we go toward Easter, we're going to examine the passion of Christ. And we're going to begin in one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture, and every year we examine this, or we do most years, and that is Jesus in the garden. Jesus grieving in the garden. And if you will, you turn to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to begin 
In verse 36, a very familiar passage, of course, the story of Jesus in the garden. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. There, Matthew says, And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to, said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O oh my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now you've perhaps heard me share with you or heard others share that if you look at the, the four Gospels, you'll find at least three times, three times we know that the Gospels record specifically that Jesus wept. Now I believe Jesus wept many more, many more than just simply three times. I'm sure that there were many times that he shed tears and he wept as he walked this earth, but we are told specifically three specific times that Jesus wept. Have you ever thought about this? And I, I, I thought about this this week. It's hard to fake weeping. I mean, it really is. I mean, can you all of a sudden just make, I mean, just start crying right now? It, you could kind of fake a laugh. You know, I mean, you could kind of, you know, make air come out of your lungs and, and kind of fake a little bit of a laugh, and people might not know the difference. But it's hard to fake crying. I probably shouldn't say this, but someone's thinking right now, I don't know, my wife's pretty good at it. <laughs> hey, it's hard to fake crying. To really, I mean, you could, to, to make the tears come from your eyes, it's hard to fake that. And three times the Bible says that Jesus specifically wept. And very quickly, you probably know what they are, but in John eleven thirty five, 35, He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept, and, and we know that He didn't weep simply because Lazarus was dead, because He was about to raise him from the dead. But He wept as all around were weeping, and, and Lazarus' sisters were weeping, and what a sad time He was weeping for the hurts of others. He wept there at the tomb of Lazarus when they were all weeping and, and grieving over the loss of Lazarus. And then in Luke 19, 41, He wept. The Bible says He saw Jerusalem, and it's an interesting story. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but he's beginning to make the triumphal entry and they're, and they're crying, you know, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees get upset and they, and they say, rebuke your disciples. 
Rebuke your disciples. And, and that's when Jesus said, if I rebuke them, the stones will cry out. And after Jesus said that, He looked at Jerusalem, thinking of the hardness of their heart and their lack of faith. And He says, you know, you don't know the time that your visitation has come. You don't recognize me is what he was basically saying. I've come to you as your Savior, but you don't recognize me. And I wonder how many of us are that way. God is speaking to us. He speaks to us through today. You're sitting here. God is speaking to you through His Word, through this sermon. He's speaking to you perhaps through the words of your parents or your spouse or your children. He's speaking to you through the Word of God. He's speaking to you through a song. And you don't recognize it. And you ignore it like the Pharisees and like the people of Jerusalem. And Jesus wept because of the hardness of their heart. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus for the sorrow that was in the hearts of the people. He wept there over Jerusalem because of their unbelief, the hardness of their heart. And here in the garden, as He prepares to go to the cross, He begins to weep. He weeps before the Lord. He weeps in prayer. He wept at a graveside. He wept at the center, at the side of a sinful city, an unbelieving city. And now he weeps as he prepares to go to the cross. I love, as you've heard me quote, no time, often many before, Isaiah 53, 3, the Bible says he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We read the life of Jesus and we see a man who was bearing a great burden. Jesus didn't come to be a comedian. He didn't come to tell jokes. He didn't come to heal people. Jesus came to bear the burdens of the world. He came to bear my burdens and to bear your burdens. He was and is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, some folks are not acquainted with grief. You have to be acquainted. To be acquainted with someone means you know them. You know them. Some of you perhaps are not acquainted with grief. With, and that's a, that's a good thing, that you have not experienced great grief. But there are others of us who are acquainted with grief. To come face to face with a great loss. A tremendous disappointment. A hole in your spirit and in your heart. And the Bible says, it's comforting words to me, that Jesus, our Savior, is not a comedian. He's not a prosperity preacher. Jesus is the Savior. He is a man of sorrows. A man whose eyes have been wet with tears. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is intimate with grief. He knows grief. He's faced grief. Deep loss. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Just a couple of passages. Hebrews 2, the Bible says, he had to be like his, Hebrews 2 verse 17, he had to be like, speaking of Jesus, he had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and has suffered, 
He is able to help those who are tested. You know, when the military is preparing a group of men or women to go out and perform a mission, they always like to have some veterans in place. Maybe it's a a company of men and there's some recruits there, some new recruits. But it's always best to have with those group of new recruits, and this is true in an athletic event or almost any type of organization, you've got those, those green hands, if you will, but it's always good to have a couple of veterans, people who understand the situation, to steady the hand, to steady the nerves, if you will, of the green hands, and that's Jesus. He's the veteran. He's walked the valley that perhaps you're walking now. He's endured the temptation that perhaps you're enduring now. He is able to help those who are tested because He has been tested. He is able to help those who are suffering because He has suffered. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is the great high priest who has been tested. And then another, Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, and remember a priest is simply an intercessor. He is one who is between us and God. He is one to whom we bring our requests and our needs. He takes those requests, He takes those needs, and He brings them before the Father. That is a priest. He's the intercessor, the intermediator, intermediator between God and man. And the Bible says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at the proper time. And one more passage uh, from Hebrews. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, During his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus, as he goes into the garden, he is a man of sorrows. He is acquainted with grief. He understands our temptations, our tests. But even Jesus didn't want to go by himself. He chose three of his disciples, and you've heard me talk about them before. Remember I said there's three times in the Scripture where we know that the Bible specifically says that Jesus wept. Well, you know, there's something about threes. Jesus took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. But that's not all. If you look through the Gospels, you'll see that there are three times in the Gospels that Jesus took these three disciples with him and everybody else stayed behind. You've probably perhaps heard me talk about them before, but the first one was in Mark chapter 5. We're not going to turn there for the interest of time. But in Mark chapter 5, there was uh, Jairus' daughter. Remember, she had died, the young girl. And Jesus went into the room where she was. Everybody was weeping and wailing. It was a great 
uh, time of sorrow, and Jesus made everybody go outside, and he took three people with him, Peter, James, and John. And those three disciples saw Jesus raise this young girl from the dead. The second time, over in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, remember, Jesus went up on the mountaintop. And he took with him only three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And it's what we call the transfiguration. That's where there was a vision and, and Moses and Elijah, the Bible says, came down and Jesus, he, he shone as the, as the midday sun. They were able to glimpse his glory for a moment. And Peter, James, and John were there and, and boy, they got excited. They said, hey, let's, let's stay here. Let's stay here. Let's, let's build a temple, one for Moses and one for... And boy, there's a great lesson there that we can sometimes get carried away. You know, that's how, how denominations normally get started. Somebody comes upon a truth. They say, boy, this is great. Let's just start a whole new movement. You know, and, and that's Peter, James, and John. They said, boy, this is great. Let's just build a church right here. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And, and boy, they were so excited. They just wanted to, to go forward with that. They were in the midst of the glory of Jesus. So they saw His power when He raised that dead girl from the grave or from the dead. They saw His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now Jesus says, I want you to suffer with me. I mean, He wasn't going to perform any miracle here. He was going in the garden and He began to weep. He began to cry. He began to pray. And Peter, James, and John, they had stayed awake when he raised that girl from the dead. That was exciting. You don't see that every day. And when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and everybody was shining like the noonday sun, they didn't fall asleep then. That was exciting. That stirred the emotions. That stirred the heart. But now it's dark. It's night. A lot of things are happening. They don't understand. Jesus is very sorrowful. He's worried. They know something is worrying Jesus. And, and here's a man that slept through a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Here's a man who was never worried. And, and Jesus is worried. They can tell. He's, he's burdened. And it's dark. And He says, come with me and, and pray with me. And so they try to pray. But they fall asleep. If you go over to Luke and read the story, you, the Bible says that their eyes were heavy because of sorrow. They were worried. They were sorrowful. And, and they were weak. And, and Jesus here, as the third time He comes back and they've fallen asleep, remember He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know the old hymn that we sometimes sing, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. One of the verses says, Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Why couldn't they stay awake? Why sometimes when you know God is calling you or I know God is calling me to do something, we find ourselves weary and, and we fall asleep? We, we just quit? We just can't do it anymore? Why? Why? As I pray about this and I look at this passage, a couple of things come to my mind. They were trying to follow Jesus, and this is the mistake we make when we follow Him in our flesh and not in our spirit. What does that mean? Let me propose to you, it means a couple of things. Number one, they were trying to follow based on their emotions. 
You can't follow Jesus based on emotion. It's like a marriage. I mean, if you decide that you're going to get married and you're going to make a determination as to whether you stay married or not by your emotions every day, how you feel about your husband or your wife, I propose to you that unless you are very different from the average human being, you're not going to stay married very long. As a matter of fact, you're going to keep the courthouse and the divorce law, you're busy. Because you're going to get divorced on Monday, and then you're going to get reunited next Wednesday, and then you're going to get divorced next Tuesday, because that's our emotions. We're up and down, up and down. And my friend, you can't keep a job based on your emotions. You can't keep a marriage going based on your emotions. And you can't follow Jesus based on your emotions. You can't serve Him based on your, emo your emotions. I love emotion, contrary to public belief. I love, but I love emotion. Emotions are good. But let me tell you, our emotions are the shallowest part of our soul. That is, that, that's like playing in the shallows. You serve Jesus not in the shallowest part of your soul, but in the deep part of your soul. You see? And they were trying to stay awake based on their emotion. The Bible says they were, they were sorrowful. They didn't understand. And sometimes when we don't understand, we just kind of kick it in neutral. You know? Put it in park. And that's the disciples. They were trying to follow Jesus with their emotions and and, and something else, they were trying to use just their willpower. Just like you can't follow Jesus based on your emotion, it's going to take more than willpower to follow Jesus. You can't just say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do better. I'm going to start living right. I'm, I tell you, I am sick and tired. It's, it's like losing weight. The battle of the bulge. You know? Never ends. I've told you often before, you know when I am the best at losing weight after a big meal. As soon as I eat a big meal, and I'm sitting there full as a tick, can't hardly have to unbutton my pants. I mean, I, you know, I, I just can't, I, I can't even move. I say, I'm fixing to lose some weight. I, I'm not going to eat supper for the next week. That's my willpower. But then if I don't eat supper on Monday, by about, I might make it not eat supper on Tuesday, but by about Wednesday, you're, when you wake up, your stomach's already growling. You eat breakfast, it's still growling. Get home on Wednesday, it's still growling. You say, well, I'm just going to eat, well, this is me. I'm just going to eat some Ritz crackers and peanut butter and jelly. That's healthy, they say. <laughs> and after I've gone through a whole sleeve of Ritz crackers, <laughs> well, I'm not going to eat supper. That's just a little snack. You see, I lose my willpower. And that's the way it is with the disciples. And that's what we mean when we say you can't follow Jesus in the flesh. Sometimes that's just kind of like a, what does that mean? It means you can't follow Jesus with your emotions alone. And you can't follow Jesus based on willpower alone. You don't have enough willpower. You must follow Jesus in the power of the Spirit. That is how we follow Jesus. And that's what... Jesus was trying to get them to understand the flesh is willing, the emotions want to be, you know, moving forward, the willpower wants to be faithful, but it's not enough. There's not enough horsepower there. 
Not enough horsepower to move the cart forward. We must have the power. We must walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus, of course, although his disciples had fallen, if you would, fallen asleep, fallen asleep on the job, their emotions had let them down, their willpower had let them down. They were not yet able and un they did not yet understand the power of the Holy Spirit that would come at Pentecost that would enable them to do the impossible, to walk in newness of life, to walk in the power of the resurrection. Jesus had not yet been risen from the grave. They couldn't walk in that power yet because He had not yet given it to them. That is why He had to die, why He had to be buried, why, why He had to rise again on the third day. That is why we call it the power of the gospel. You see, we would all simply be like Peter, James, and John wanting to do better, hoping to do better, but never able to do better were it not for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is These three men, they're a picture of, of, the, of you and I trying to live the Christian life based on our own emotion and our own willpower. We want to do better, but we just can't. We just keep failing. We can't. It's not because we don't want to, we just, we just can't. But on the other side, when Jesus died on the cross, He was buried, He rose again on the third day, that is the gospel. On the day of Pentecost, they received the power of the Holy Spirit and these same three men would go about and spread the gospel. They would suffer for Jesus. They would serve the Lord. In, they would be faithful and true because they were going to walk in the power of the gospel. Well, very quickly, our time is, is escaping, but what was the cup that he was talking about? He said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. What was that cup? Well, it wasn't simply the death on the cross, crucifixion, and, and I certainly, we should think about that, but I wonder if we don't make a mistake sometimes when we focus on the physical pain of the death by crucifixion. That's, a, that, that's terrible. But, but that's not what he was shuddering at. That's not the cup that, that he feared and did not want to drink. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Jesus, for He made Him who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And 1 Peter 2.24 says, Who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. Remember, if you were with us and we watched that video last Sunday, you remember the young girl who was giving her testimony and she wanted to kill herself and, and, and how um, she met the Lord and, and a gentleman prayed for her. And remember she said that God first time she'd ever really felt the presence of God. And you remember what she said? She said, the first thing I noticed about God was He was so very holy and pure. And the second thing I noticed was I was not. He was so holy and pure and I was not. If I've ever heard a vivid sound description of what it means to come into contact with God, that's it. That is the reaction of every time anybody in Scripture came into contact with the presence of the Lord. They had an overwhelming impression that God is holy. Remember Isaiah in the Old Testament? When he came into contact, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was overwhelmed by the impression of the holiness of God, the pureness of God, and His own sinfulness. And my friend, if you've never had that realization, you have to ask yourself, have I ever met God? Because that's going to be your response. It's called repentance. Conversion. Where you come to a realization that I am a... You're no longer making excuses. It's no longer somebody else's fault. It's no longer your parents or your spouse or those other people that make you do all those bad things. You all of a sudden realize it's me. My heart is black and dark. And my heart is sinful. I need to be cleansed. It's nobody else's fault but mine. And my friend, one of the cups that Jesus dreaded to take was the fact that He was going to take upon Himself. He was going to literally become sin for us. There's so much truth there. But I just want to leave you with this, and that is... In that truth is the reason that that we can preach to people and say, listen, come to Jesus. And the song we sang a moment ago, and your sins will be washed away. How can you make that claim? Because Jesus took your sin. He took your sin. He died on the cross for your sin. He paid for your sin on the cross. That's why you can have peace. He purchased your peace with His blood. He purchased your righteousness by becoming your sin. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why we sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, because He first loved me. When we have an understanding of what Jesus has done for us through the cross, He took away our sin. He bore that cup. He drunk that cup. That cup of sin for us. He made it His own. And then, of course, Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cried about the ninth hour and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why can we talk about heaven? Why can we lay on a deathbed and say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit? Because Jesus was separated from the Father because He bore our sin, then we are united. We can be reconciled to the Father because He's given us His righteousness. It's a trade-off. We give Him our dirty sin. He gives us His righteousness. We bring to Him our failures, our brokenness, our broken life. He offers to us a new life. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, He is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. That is the gospel. That is it. He died for us. He took our failures. He took our brokenness. He took our guilt. He gives to us His wholeness. His pureness. His peace. His righteousness. His right standing with God. And lastly, the cup that he bore was in Isaiah 53, 3. I read just a moment ago. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Have you ever talked to somebody that's really going through a hard time? Doesn't it drain you? 
I mean, you know somebody's really, really burdened, and you talk to them, and you listen to them, and, and, and you go away and you say, man, that was, that was hard. That was tough. Trying to hear what they were saying and understanding and feeling their grief, and that, that's draining, emotionally draining. And can you imagine Jesus? The Bible says on the cross, He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Every grief. Every broken heart, every sorrow, He bore that in order that He might help us bear it. He bore our sin. He bore our sorrows. And He was separated from the Father. You've heard me quote this before, but a couple of verses that I love. He had no tears for His own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And I know I've quoted this song numerous times, but I, I love the words. It's one of those songs that you almost have to stop and say, wait, let's don't sing it. Let's read it slowly and listen to the words. Let that truth sink in. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He, full atonement can it be, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then anew His song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. One of the reasons I wanted you to listen to those testimonies from Billy Graham's five children, I can't think of a better man and woman from all I know than Billy and Ruth Graham if you study their life. Certainly weren't perfect. They were sinners, but I believe lived for God in an exemplary way. And, and I listened to the testimonies of those four kids. And, and, and they were broken, many I especially loved if you listen to Ruth Graham's testimony. She talked about all her failed marriages and all the things that happened. And she said, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ruining it for you. I'm going to end telling you part of it. But, but she said, you know, you young ladies will know that you don't want to embarrass your dad. She said, well, you sure don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. And she said, you know, I had to come back to see my dad after I really made a mess of things in my life. And I thought, what am I going to tell Mama? What am I going to tell Daddy? What will I say? I've, I've been such a failure. I've made such a mess. He said, and I wound up the path to their home up in the hills, and I got there to the top, rounded that last curve in my car. I was crying, so embarrassed, just thinking, what, you know, what am I going to say? What are they going to say? He said, I saw my Daddy standing in the yard. And I got out, and he didn't say anything, but he opened his arms and said, Welcome home. 
and said, I just fell into his arms. She said, my daddy is not God. But that day he showed me what God is like. What God is like. And I thought about that story of the prodigal son and coming home, the father seeing him coming a long way away and run, ran out to meet him. That's the gospel. I, I tell you, that, that's probably more powerful than all the sermons Billy Graham ever preached. Just that little private story. There were no cameras to record, no reporters to ask, no news article to be printed. Just a father and a broken daughter and grace and love. And that's what God is. That's why Jesus was weeping in the garden. He was weeping so that we could come back to our Father, our Heavenly Father. No matter what we've done or where we've been or how broken or messed up our life is, like the old song says, Christ receiveth sinful men. He receiveth sinful men. He came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come and give us a hymn of invitation this morning. And you're here today. Maybe you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe God is speaking to your heart. You've never made a public profession of Christ. The Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. You come this morning, I'll pray with you, and you can start anew. You can have a new, be a new creation in Christ Jesus. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise I give you based on the Word of God. That's what God promises. That's what the gospel promises. Not that all your problems will go away, but that you will be empowered with power from on high to live not by your emotions and not by your will, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God and to live for Him. Maybe you just want to come pray for the burden or give a word of thanks. You just obey the Holy Spirit as we stand and sing.